1: Welcome in, everybody. It is your Thursday, January 26th episode of the OBR Film Breakdown. Happy to be joined by Jared Mueller in just a moment. Before we do get so, I want to talk to you again every time I do about what's going on on the website and some awesome opportunities to learn things about your Cleveland Browns. So, you uh, you know, the day starts uh, with pretty simple stuff. We always start with the Newswire. If you wake up in the morning, get your coffee, read the Newswire. I think it's a great way to start your day. A lot of different content. And we link to a lot of different different Brown sites Uh, and what they're putting out, and just provide as much information as we can. From there, we had the Day 8 mock, which I took my favorite draft crush right now, Tyler Scott, with Pick 42. Uh, Go read about that, why I think so. And then there were a bunch of new names I introduced in that Day 8 mock. You'll get a mock Monday through Friday, Uh, for me, relatively in-depth, at least to an extent, talking about these guys, not just putting out a mock of names. You're getting a little bit more detail about these players to get familiar with them before the draft hits late April. And then we will um, do Saturday four mocks uh, for that as well. So you can get four different perspectives. So that's what you're going to get draft content. And then we'll do our Tuesday live draft shows starting in February as well, which is right around the corner. And then uh, from there, uh, our own Brad Ward put up things I think I know about the Browns, which he touched on the defensive staff, Greg Newsom's role, uh, and amongst other things. We got an Andrew Berry GM performance, which is really fun to look at what the decision was Andrew Barry made on position by position. Um, you know, whether he either kept somebody cut somebody drafted somebody or didn't sign or trade for a player and what that could have looked like. So reviewing position by position, his decisions, with others that were out there that they could have potentially grabbed. I also wrote something I'm really proud of this today. Uh, One simple scheme that the Browns can steal from each conference championship offense. You guys know a large portion of my thinking as the offseason rolls into focus is about how the offense reshapes itself and what they do to get better. And with the four teams that are in the conference championship games this weekend, they have a great way of structuring their offense. And I think there are multiple things they could take from Kyle Shanahan's 49ers or what the Bengals are doing from Callahan in uh, in, in Cincinnati, um, and then obviously hit on what the Eagles are doing with their quarterback run game RPO stuff. So that's also a pretty cool thing to look into what they can add because Watson can do a lot of these fun things and to some stuff from the Chiefs who are truly the West Coast potpourri of fun schemes. So check that out. Read four simple schemes that I took from the four teams and, and learn a little bit about where I hope the Browns offense goes. And then we also continued our trade value series on Joel Batonio, this time up we've talked about every really key member of the browns so far Uh, a lot of names miles garrett newsome ward chubb a lot of different names looking at what what would an actual trade of those guys look like not that you're saying they will or should but what would it look like what would it cost what would the salary cap ramifications be that is up listen we got those series running every day a lot of that stuff is just log into the obr and read about the browns and the different elements of the team it's all there so check that out we're going to welcome in Uh, jared mueller now who again jared's one of my favorite guests We had him on all year we will continue to try to get his time weekly uh throughout the season too jared what's up man welcome in uh how's uh how's life it's been
2: a minute since we've talked you know i I took a little vacation out to san diego right after the season ended and so that was uh i hear san diego is one of the most fabulous places to visit was that is that your experience It was really interesting. Like, I really enjoyed it. It was uh, some of the coldest weather they have experienced uh, and the highest waves when we were out on the kayaks, the highest waves they've had in 20 years. Uh, So it literally was like a little bit of a roller coaster while we're out in the kayaks. Like, they're like, hey, you got to really be perpendicular when these big waves come. I was like, hey, I'm pretty decently intelligent, but I'm going to make sure I confirm with you using my hands that you mean perpendicular like a T, correct? They're like, good job. I'm like, I'm just not messing around with these humongous flipping waves. Um, So, yeah, it was really cool. Very cliffy uh, versus like easy access beach kind of stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I did some adventure climbing over into a uh, secluded beach that nobody else was on and all kinds of fun stuff. So really enjoyable, really good food. Uh, If we won the, you know, the big old lottery, uh, it's one of the places we would buy a house. But uh, where we were near... uh, (laughs) a 1000 square foot or smaller house was in the million of dollars range. <laughs> so yeah, I had a couple of friends at a former job I was at who were, who, uh, who
1: had previously lived in San Diego, worked in San Diego and they just, they loved it. Like their last employer was right by uh, what is it there? Uh, Petco park or it used to be. Yep. Petco. I'm not sure if it still is anymore, but just going over their baseball games and stuff. Cause they weren't that good at the time. Um, but you could just kind of walk over to the games and, you know lunch breaks or whatever and it was just a really cool place to to be and i've heard nothing but great things about san diego you know san you know what that means
0: yeah. we will not go into
1: that <laughs> now we don't need to hopefully you understand that reference if not you need to expand your movie horizons listen okay we're going to talk about a lot of browns topics there are um some interesting things i, I wouldn't say anything interesting is happening yet but there's some rumblings right so um the big one that is out right now is Albert Breer talked about on 92.3 the fan today and Breer appears comes on every week and listen I don't somebody took like offense to us saying this last week. I just don't think Albert Breer is very connected to Cleveland like I don't think he has a great feel for what's going on with the Browns very connected New England but like I mean when you're when you're out there last week publicly saying Brian Flores is the leader for the DC job hire and then the very next morning Schwartz is hired like it's kind of hard to believe that and it's not just <laughs> this example there's a lot of examples but he says From Brewer, the quote is, I think they could have a big swing or two in them for the Browns offseason. A big swing or two in them. I think there's a lot on the line this offseason for a lot of people in that building. So you peel back that comment. I think that there is a lot on the line for the collective group for the whole year. I wouldn't say they need some gigantic offseason, that there's a lot on the line if they don't make splashes. I've been pretty vocal about them being all in in the next two years minimum, four-year stretch here before they have to reshape a lot of important things. I just don't know that they have to go make some gigantic splash trade. It feels like last year would be when they made the gigantic splash trade. So I don't really know what I mean, like to me, Jared, does that mean you're making a deal for a wide receiver of some relevance? Like when you read that, what are you thinking? Because they are limited here. I talked to Jack Duffin about the salary cap just yesterday about how, you know, they're going into the year in a situation where they're down going into the cap now, the rollover will click in and help and obviously they can restructure and cut a few things to get to jack's reference was like 64 5 million is where he expects they could get to comfortably but that's going to take a lot of work so it's not like they're going and i think i think you have probably seen this too jared like pff and some people who really study the cap do like health ratings for each team like where the team's health is with cap flexibility and where they sit on a bunch of different elements, and the Browns are in the bottom five, six, seven, eight teams in most of those reviews. So I agree that there's some there's a there's a desire to improve this offense. Uh, sorry, improve this roster collectively, and that definitely includes the defense. But I don't think they have to hit some gigantic home run of a name. Are you getting the vibe? He's trying to say a name. Like, I, it feels like that's a he put out a really interesting statement there.
2: Yeah, I think what what Breer is doing, and you're exactly right, he has sources, he just may not have sources inside of Cleveland. And so, you know, whenever there's a uh, an insider, I always try to figure out where will their information come from, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's going to be agents. Um, and so I think what he is saying is that he thinks the Browns will try to do something big in name or maybe in value. And so... Uh, I think what we know from Andrew Barry is he does like to get creative, but what will Browns fans consider big, right? Obviously, DeAndre Hopkins is the name, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, In the end, the Browns are limited. They are betting a little bit on uh, the continued rise in in the salary cap. There is some idea that that is the kind of the thing at the end of the tunnel that says we're going to get better because – and we're going to be able to do this because – the salary cap is going to go up 10, 15, 20, you know, over the next two years, three years, it's going to be 40 or 50. Um, but I think Breer is reading both the tea leaves as well as, to be very honest, I think he's reading what agents are hoping. Agents are hoping, as they, ha- they do with every team, they are hoping the Browns are a team that needs to make a big move, that needs to sign Daron Payne for... 18 million a year, right? 20 million a
1: year. That Which needs- I did see some rumblings that DeRon Payne is just going to be let go. I cannot imagine they would just let him go to free agency, but maybe they're hoping for a third-round comp pick back for him. I'm not sure, Jared. So One I of the reasons I saw Yeah.
2: That. No, you're good. One of the reasons for that there is some thought that the the Washington team will try to keep their books a little cleaner uh right now as they're looking to sell uh mm-hmm. and so a big 20 million dollar whatever a year contract even on a franchise tag just doesn't keep the books as clean when you have uh Sweat and uh Jonathan Allen and and uh Chase Young all will be coming up for contracts. So there is a lot of I do believe Payne will most likely walk unless they can pull off transition tag trade for a you know whatever kind of pick or for players or whatever. Um or even DeAndre Hopkins like he could be trying to leverage Everybody knows the relationship with Watson. And then could he get, uh, you know, his money guaranteed or whatever? Um, Brewer's not wrong in that the Browns are going to be highly active, but they've been highly active under, under Andrew Berry, right? John Johnson, uh, two years ago, last year is obviously Watson and Cooper. His rookie year or his first year in the job, uh, you know, they didn't turn out real well, but it was Austin Hooper. It was Jack Conklin. It was Case Keenum. Right, they they've made a lot of moves, and and teams and agents believe they'll continue to do that. I think this is just, to be honest, I think Breer is saying something, reading the tea leaves, with some agent hope, and and that's really about it. Because it doesn't, if he's wrong, what are people gonna? What what can he? What is he gonna say? Yep, they just they swung and they missed. Right? Yeah, there's not exactly. there's not a lot of there there. If if you know what I mean. And it's also not an an you have to remember he's on a Cleveland radio
1: station. Like he didn't put this independent report out on his own. He's talking yep. about like, you know, again, there's more, there's more to like putting your name behind it nationally than there is just talking on, you know, 92, three, the fan, which is nothing but respect to them. But like, that's just how it goes. And, and to your point, like taking a swing and missing, you know, like, well, they swung at day Payne, they offered him blah, blah, blah. And he, turn it down he want to go here there the other so you can kind of word salad your way out of that thing i, I think what it, the, the most interesting off-season move they can make is this to me jared and this will get a lot of talk on this show and many other shows and it's starting to pick up steam and i've said it for a while and i think you know uh, i don't know if jack and i talked about it yesterday but jack put out a tweet about it and he acted like it was an original thought i said jack i've been brother i've been saying this for a while like if they are going to make a big move it probably involves one of their young corners while denzel ward is in a bit of a predicament with his contract like I don't think he's going anywhere because of the deal he signed and the dead cap weight and all that stuff like MJ Emerson who had a fantastic rookie year and Greg Newsom are two players I think teams would covet if they don't have uh, depth at corner right so you know what he said today um, and again I, I agree that like an option out there is you know like, like Jerry Judy was a name that was floated at the deadline I don't know if that was ever really serious it could have been Jerry Judy's agent just trying to Put that out there so that his his uh, you know his guy would have it kind of floated. He's unhappy playing with Russell Wilson. As it seems like everybody's <laughs> relatively unhappy playing with Russell Wilson. But you know, would a team be willing to take a corner? A re- I mean, those two are two promising young corners to give up a young wide receiver. And to me, it's just hard. Like this is a deep draft of corners, and I don't think people have looked at it. Like there are a bunch of really like long-bodied six-two type of corners in this draft like there's going to be i think the first two rounds of corners selected have a chance to be pretty good like i've early in the study here putting these mocks together watching tape and i'm really impressed with the depth of the cornerback position and i you know i like to confirm it with guys who have been doing it all year and i talked to dane brugler a little bit who i'll have on this pod later in the year but like he's in the same boat like there's an impressive group of young corners in this draft so like i just don't see Unless you get a great deal, like, okay, Elijah Moore at the Jets, but they have a pretty good cornerback group. Like the Broncos maybe because outside of Sertan, they have like Ronald Darby and Kaywan Williams, who, yeah, that same Browns, Kwan Williams, is still thriving. Still in the league, but, they're, but they're older, so maybe they do want a second young corner. I don't know. I mean, this draft does have good wide receivers in it too. I mean, I think it's an underrated, it's not the 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 star heavy draft of last year and the year before that with wide receivers that were just loaded with topping players but I do think there's a good group of uh late first into the second round guys that are that are really going to be fun and have a chance to be good in the NFL so I'm not saying anything's impossible here but it's just like in the NFL where you're looking around and like oh the Bengals T Higgins they have two of them right the Eagles oh they have two of them oh okay uh the the, the 49ers they have two of them right you know Casey has a generational quarterback and the best tight end not ever grace a field so it's a little tricky with them but in, in eight, but they were again what were they thriving with before Tyreek Hill he was a huge part of what they did so it's hard to just see me uh, see a team just saying okay we'll give up Jerry Judy right or we'll give up somebody who's really really promising without getting something serious in return again like Stephon Diggs first round pick you know, uh, um, you know even looking recently uh, and I know Diggs turned into Jefferson and all that but like Tyree kill first round pick Devonte Adams, first round pick. Like it's just, it's hard to give up on these guys. They're they're the wide receiver position and what those guys can do are really, really uh, important. But again, I don't think it's impossible. There are teams that probably would want young corners in the same mold that they want young wide receivers, but I don't know that there's a fit out there. Do you see
2: something in your early thought? And do you think that that's a spot they can move on from there? I, you know, I think cornerback is a spot they could move on for, from. I just don't know if they can value doing that for a wide receiver. And I'll say it this way, not to over exaggerate the talent the Browns have at the position, but Amari Cooper is a, is a one B, right? I wouldn't say he's on that elite level, but he's a one B Donovan Peoples Jones is an okay. Appropriate number two, David Njoku is a fine tight end. Nick Chubb is still going to be an important part of your offense. And so giving away your second or third cornerback for someone who bumps Donovan Peoples Jones down to be your fifth offensive weapon, like that, that value just doesn't seem to be there. And much like defensive line and quarterback and offensive line, wide receiver has kind of entered that elite tier that you're talking about, not only from a trade perspective, but also from a contract perspective. And so uh-huh. I think on the offensive side of the ball, while I would love to see, An Anthony Schwartz who can actually catch and, you know, be productive and not kind of be in his head a little bit too much. Um, I'm just not sure the Browns, I think the Browns are going to say Deshaun Watson has to raise the ships, right? Like they've got talent. Deshaun Watson is going to have to raise those ships. We just spent a third round pick on David Bell. Two years ago, we spent a pick on Anthony Schwartz. So the real question is if you're going to deal out of a place that could quickly become maybe not a weakness, but lack depth, are you going to do that? in an area where you already have some talents or would you limit that to, and this is not obviously realistic, but would you limit that to do a Greg Newsom and whatever if there's an Aaron Donald trade, right? Like obviously that's Mm -hmm. not going to happen, but, but because that position is such a need, could you then say, we're going to pull from this talent area to give to this talent area. And that's maybe more where I could see some of that kind of thing happen unless the Browns decide to, you know, do some huge shakeup where Jed Wills and Wyatt Tellers and, you know, some of the people that we don't think are are going anywhere are all of a sudden a part of a package deal to really shuffle the whole lineup. And I don't think I'm smart enough to figure out what that would look like. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. I wouldn't <laughs> pretend to try. So um yeah, I wanted to hit
1: that. I wanted to hit that topic because I think it's just going to be a really prevalent one of how do they for a team that doesn't have a first-round pick for the next few years, how do they shake up? What do they give up A value that is going to be worth somebody coming in? Because you know, I, I think there's a world where Hopkins can get to maybe a third or fourth-round pick being end up being the cost. Uh, but I think we could all look back and say Andrew Barry pulled off an absolute miracle with what he had to give up to go get Amari Cooper and how well that worked. So I just don't know if that miracle is out there again. And you don't also you – know, again, I talked with Jack about it yesterday. They have a lot of 10, 10 million APY guys on the offense. They have seven right now yeah. and if you add another that's eight potentially and it's like the the, the the teams that are in the conference championships right now don't have that these teams that are running healthier situations don't have that so they have to look at cutting down salary in certain places and you need guys on rookie contracts you just do so
2: and you know, i'll tell that's you this an important Jake, thing to remember it's just a it's a little teaser. So uh, SBNation.com dot com has been using uh, some of us from our from the team sites to do some national work. Uh, and tomorrow on the site, I have a piece where I just looked at literally all four. Well, two different pieces, looking at all four of the different rosters um, that were in the final four. And the reality is, is many of those rosters are players that were drafted or undrafted free agents. And honestly, very few of them have signed second contracts with their teams. It is a bunch of 60 to 66% of the players are drafted by the teams they're with or undrafted free agents, but only with the Kansas city chiefs, I believe off the top of my head, only four of them were actually signed to second contracts. And those are the big guys, right? Those are the Mahomes and the Kelsey's and, and some of those guys. And so you're exactly right. It's hard to have a lot of really, really high paid players Especially when you're paying a Deshaun Watson, like it just limits what you're able to do there. So, uh, that'll come up on com. but you're exactly right about team building.
1: Yeah, it's a, it, they're in a dicey spot there. So, I, I think it's worth monitoring the hopes and wishes of they need to win now, they need to go get a big time wide receiver. Well, are they moving Wyatt Teller? Are they move? who are they moving off to get there? Because they can't just keep adding expensive pieces there, it's going to catch up. Like, you eventually have to pay that credit card bill. And yeah, we all want to talk about a win now window. And I'm 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 with that. I want to push chips on the table, too. But you can only do it so much without just absolutely crippling yourself at the back end. When you didn't just go sign Watson or give Watson an extension, you gave up your most coveted asset for three straight years. So that cannot be glossed over. There are um, only a couple more little topics I want to hit on very yep. quickly. Ben Watson put out a tweet today. Um <laughs> about i don't even know i haven't i didn't dig into why he put this out but he told the story about i have to presume it was like you and i were talking off air it was from his draft cycle but he said um essentially he was brought in in a dark room with a spotlight on the browns executive sort of standing in the corner and was asked have you have you smoked weed which again a tell of the times here i know about let's feel like it's getting a little better about the condition of smoking weed but um he said no and then the the person the interviewer or whoever it was who the hell knows again this was around the 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 i would have to think it's a ne- at least near the time of some really weird browns regimes as i, I think today is the wouldn't have been an- an- anniversary uh, close to it and today's the anniversary of the george kakonis removed from the browns huh. building after 10 <laughs> months on the job nobody truly knows what the hell happened there that's that's a lot of behind uh behind the door talking with what whatever happened there it's very hush hush but anyway um the guy so then he is then asked he says no guy grabs his wrist asks the question louder and is apparently like taking his pulse while asking it to see if his pulse races and he's lying um god what a weird time 2000 like 10 to 2000 like i would say 2007 to two thousand. 12-ish was just a really weird time in football evaluation it was really strange this is (laughs) around not too far off the time when the browns called the wrong jordan cameron if uh if i if i or cameron jordan versus jordan cameron yeah so the, the the browns called cameron jordan to tell them they drafted him and they meant to call jordan cameron is the story so yeah this is a why have the Browns stunk, you know, all those years? Well, here you go. You know, here's many examples. Well, and the fact like
2: that. that, you know, you talk about some of these stories and you're like, which coach was that, right? Like which random coach that has not coached in the league since then? Like it is, yeah. it is, it's actually more impressive when you see Mike Patton's name is still like of all the coaches, Mike Patton has actually, I think if I'm, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but he's the coach that was in a pretty significant position and has stayed in pretty significant positions in the NFL, right? He's, yeah. he's, he's interviewing for another well, defensive coordinator as an offensive coordinator to head coach. Like that's, that's true. Yeah, much, he's, yeah. He's done some of that as well. Um, but it's just so very random. Yeah. The Ben Watson thing doesn't surprise me. There, there were so many times when the Browns were trying to be smarter than just be s- smart, if that makes sense. And, mm-hmm. um, and some people would say that's true with the analytics gurus and all that stuff. Uh, But it doesn't surprise me. They've tried to get ahead somehow, um, put their stamp on it, uh, when all they have to do is win, right? Like, Mm -hmm. just win. The rest of it will work itself out. People call you smart because you win, right? That's it. That is it man and they've they've been certainly
1: making the game harder than it feels like it needs to be or overthinking it uh, and maybe just they don't overthink it they're just not good enough thinkers that's another angle so anyway uh last little piece is Miles Garrett left off the defensive player of the year award list if you again I still think that the study and understanding of of defensive line play is really really still flawed. I think there are two people who do it well enough to be noticed for what they do. I think Pro Football Focus does a pretty good job. Not a perfect system, but a pretty good job. Um, you know, heavily based on tape study, not statistical number look at like a page study look at. They do their own uh, film study and then they try to grade it and i have questions and, and issues about how they grade sometimes but nonetheless their their process is very checked and very balanced and they there's there's a lot to uh avoid any sort of bias in there and they they had miles as their highest highest graded defensive uh player i think across the board and then also i think a, a guy i've talked about on this pod many times brandon Thorne, does a really fun mm-hmm. study of of types of sacks right high quality low quality coverage sack um, rare I think is his best one where a guy does something super special to make a sack happen and I think he had miles on this year's listing as uh something something like um something like second or third I think he was ended up second out in front of Hassan Reddick, but behind it was behind somebody it, it wasn't Bosa Bosa was like fifth uh it was a defensive tackle I think it might have been Chris Jones I can't remember who it was but um you know he's always really high on this and like if you looked at last year the guys at summer sports did a great job of in their NFL data bowl study, looking at, you know, how defensive coaches make life the easiest for certain players. And miles was like, he was like at the highest upper left point of difficulty of role. And I just don't think that's ever taken into account where I feel like baseball and and basketball have started to understand like Nikola Jokic is a great example. He wins the MVP on a team that ends up the eight seed, right? Like, that is important right because it, it usually just goes to the team best player on the best team it's just been that way but that's they're starting to understand that you know, you're you one player in a cog of a lot of different moving parts here and like I was asked our OBR guys were asking today about like who's the MVP of the Browns and there's great answers you could say Jacoby Brissett you could say um you know Amari Cooper you there's options but if you take miles out of this defense they they might not have had 10 sacks all year like <laughs> He is so far and away the best player that they have, doing it the most valuable piece of their operation. That he just is—he's underappreciated, and I feel like that's a league-wide thing. So I was just curious: Do you think that that's? I just think he didn't have to win the award. I get that, but I think he should be on the ballot. Like he should be on the ballot of the four or five guys that are up for it every year.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think there is a part where whether it's the players or media, obviously you—the Deshaun Watson stuff skews the team a little bit and the look of the team, uh, how bad the defense skews it. But I also think there's a piece. It's kind of the Shaquille O'Neal, LeBron James thing where there is some, I don't know if it's going to be jealousy, but there's some like, Hey, you're six, five and two eighty five and can bend like that. You sh-. it's almost as if it's like, you should be able to do that. Like almost like he should be even doing more somehow because he is, he looks how he looks. Whereas I, I haven't seen Von Miller in person, but when I see Von Miller on the field, I don't see the freak that I see in Miles Garrett. So I also think he kind of gets downplayed because he's put the work in, in the gym and blessed by, by God with this athletic gifting and body type and all that stuff. So I do think he also kind of gets minimized for that where Aaron Donald, they're like, Oh, look how short he is for all the defensive tackles. We'll take his shirt off and you can count his muscles. Cause they're all protruding out right like he's a freak as well but it's not seen the same way six five huge long arms looks mm-hmm. like they painted that green suit on him two years ago at the nfl draft miles garrett is so i think it's just a whole bunch of little factors that play a role unless miles garrett challenges for the sack record i or the browns you know have the 49ers uh statistical kind of defense i think he's going to struggle to get that kind of respect
1: yeah and it, and it still is i mean the the Steelers weren't very good last year but TJ Watt fell into a lot of sacks and that's um that's a large part of it i mean it just is and and again i don't if you look at those metrics that matter those those like i i just think that like i think baseball has gotten to the point and i keep going back to baseball but like people have understood and respect now that weighted runs at you know are you know like weighted runs are a thing right they understand it's OPS plus like that's a thing weighted runs created like there's an acceptance of what the meaningful underlying statistics I think football is still searching for that but it seems like with quarterback play we're getting there where people are starting to understand that CPOE is like completion percentage over expected and EPA is mattering I don't think they have a way to quantify this yet defensively that's why I th- really think it, that like what, what Brandon Thorne is putting out is really important and impressive because it is adding some context to it and it is putting a number behind this stuff that guys are putting out as far as sacks go because really truly all sacks are not created equal and you could have a play where you have an infinitely better effort and move and, and everything but the ball comes out because somebody else doesn't do their job but you could have this play where you don't make you don't beat your guy in any way shape or form but the quarterback holds on to it misses a read never sees it or runs right into you like there yep. it's just it's just weird and there's no great way of quantifying it and i feel like football's stuck in this era where we don't really have this accepted way to to break down the true impact of a player on defense not one that everybody points to you know what i'm saying
2: right and d- the the great example of that is bud dupree right bud dupree sacks in pittsburgh were absolutely cam hayward tj watt uh he was unblocked for a significant number of them um or the quarterback ran right into him and tennessee signed him for whatever very large contract they signed it for. They're yeah. you're you're exactly right. There's just not a lot of acceptance to it um because a sack is a sack, right? And and that's how people look at it. But I, I think I don't know if we'll ever get there because sacks are such Well, it didn't the, help.
1: It didn't help like PFF's trying to put together a war thing um which I respect right. because baseball is obviously so well, you know, into the war belief and I think baseball does a good job of quantifying war, but they, they then I remember they put out this this piece in like 2019 or early 2020 before the season where they were like um, Golden Tate is as valuable as much war created as Miles Garrett. Is he actually more <laughs> valuable? And I was like, guys, you can't try to do offense defense the same. It's not right. It's not the same like that. That stuff has hurt the progress that I think was supposed to be made with this stuff, because, again, there is not a really quantifiable way of doing this. Like you'll talk to Bengals people. And Jesse Bates, who's of particular interest to the Cleveland market because he might Mm -hmm. be a true free agent and the Browns are going to look for a post safety where it's like his grades haven't been very good in the postseason. And people you talk to, a couple guys who do Bengals film study are like, that's ridiculous. He's been playing really well. And like, I just, I just, I'm a little annoyed that football's behind this stuff in terms of being able to on defense. Again, I think offense is getting better. I still think there's some wide receiver play issues with that. And I still think there's some issues with, uh, offensive line grading but the way quarterbacks are starting to get quantified like i see a lot of discussion around why patrick mahomes should be the mvp and largely it's based on hey his cpoe and his epa and these it's not the baseline like look at his stat page stats now we're digging beyond that how do we get to a universal number defensively that matters to, to truly understand this and that's why like again It's you, you, you you might not agree with me, but I, I think Brandon's work is that. And again, that's the thing that sucks is Brandon's one guy. And I, I think Brandon is a, a really smart football analyst, but there can be mistakes. There can be misinterpretations. There can be a bias that he doesn't even know he has. And there's not a lot of people doing what he's doing. So there's not fact checking on it, but his way of doing it, I think is fantastic. And it should be something that we're looking into for how to grade, quantify and assess Who's actually making those 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 important plays on a defensive line? Because I just don't think it's doing it. You'll see these great graphs are put out by some really smart guys, some really some really impressive PFF analysts, uh, and and it's it's that's great. I like what they're doing, but tell me how you're going to make this digestible for people who are Pro Football Writers of America types who need to understand. Like that's why Brandon's way of simplifying it and kind of putting it in a graph that shows you. The type of sack and the skill set required to make that play is a really meaningful tool to me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You you're talking about the not dumbing it down, but simplifying it, so we can all. Yeah, talk that's the what same war way. is. Like, you know, yeah, like, it is what war is. And and from a team perspective, I like DVOA for that reason because it just yeah. gives us some numbers, some percentages, whatever. Uh, but you're exactly right. Like, you know, unfortunately, people the details the the film work, the all that stuff at a really kind of uh, big level, the Facebook level, the ESPN level has rarely paid off, right? It, it, they haven't stuck with it long enough. They haven't done it in a way that is interesting. Even someone like Dan Orlovsky, I think has, he started off really, really good at it and then has had to kind of become the, the chuckles and the, the hot take and the, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it just, it's really frustrating to see quality analysis and quality information is both hard to find and it doesn't exist at the same time, which is kind of what you're talking about. It is, man.
1: I I think that's an important development in the next five years. I think they're getting a lot of things right with football and trying to put numbers behind and understand it. And maybe there is some development of this behind the scenes that we don't even know about yet. That's entirely, entirely possible. But for now it's like, it's just a disappointing and lacking metric of, uh, analysis that I think is leading to some miscalculations on defensive importance and defensive um, you know defensive evaluation. so hopefully that that gets improved in the near future. We're going to take our only break of this episode um, and we come back from that break. I will uh, with Jared go over the offensive line and do our 2022 review. we'll be right back.
0: We're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. don't search match with indeed.
1: All right, Jared. So we're going to look at offensive line review for the year. We're going to definitely just key in on blocking. Look at the guys who played uh, actual, you know, snaps that mattered in this blocking report and go through one by one. Let's start with this. I'll let you, you start from the top. Sometimes I take in and give my opinion first, but I want to hear yours. How would you say the offensive line performed this year? And again, we can do it from the same field of
2: below at or above expectation from the group. So I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Below both uh, probably obviously due to some injury, uh, but in general, the offensive, even Joel Batonio, I didn't feel like he was himself, Jack Conklin. Uh, there was a part of me that was shocked by his by the extension that they gave him because I didn't think his play was anywhere near what he was pre the his second uh, major leg injury. Uh, so across the board, I felt like the only person that was above was Ethan Posick and I had no expectations for him. Uh, So in a lot of ways, he was the only one that really was above expectations. Everyone else, I felt like, you know, at times they were at expectations, but a majority of the time they were below expectations.
1: Yeah. Group wise. I think you could talk me into saying they, they were about at the fringe level of what we expected them to be Uh, because I thought their first start of the year was fine i thought up until the buy they were they were pretty good but after the buy something changed now a lot of people want to depend that on postage but that wasn't it because even when postage came back he wasn't playing as well as he was before the injury just something changed now what that is it's kevin and the staff's job to figure out what the hell happened here whether that was teams figuring out schemes and cheating things and being out in front of stuff or some of the line game stuff hurt them but they didn't run it as well and they certainly didn't pass protect as well as they did before the buy so from a break it in half, it was an ad expectation first half in and in a really below expectation second half. And to me, as we look at the whole group before we dive into individual numbers, that's a concern to me, Jared. And And I think that I don't know, again, how much the coaching staff needed to help them schematically with lighter boxes with quicker concepts to get rid of the football and some of it too. the second half of the year is getting used to a new quarterback who does do things differently than the Baker Mayfield, Jacoby Brissett dynamic before, which is, uh, you know, they're timing quarterbacks. If they didn't get, if they didn't get a throw out in time, they you know, it, you know more often than not, were taking a sack, but, but it had a very deliberate way of escaping the pocket. Deshaun Watson is a, he's like a Scrabble. Uh, <sighs> not, not, what is that? that, that old, uh, lines Boggle? going everywhere yeah something like that <laughs> the uh, etch-a-sketch like he's kind of everywhere oh, okay. he, the two gotcha. he he has a level of comfort in getting out of chaos now it didn't manifest itself in a bunch of scramble drill success but again that's pretty random scramble drill success is more random than anybody wants to admit there is a there is a, a fine tuning to it that i hope the browns get to with comfort but i'm not i'm not making excuses for either watson and i've talked about this whether it's this pot or i think i was on quincy um quincy a you know um carriers youtube talking about this a little bit today i'm not making excuses for any of them but it is a completely different feel and and like there's an element that they all have to get used to each other and uh that that will probably come but again it's it's again a full year and working out all the kinks and we'll we'll see as it goes but they weren't as good and i think there's there's a reason to be a little bit concerned not just because of the contract like you said that that say jack conklin received but they're invested they're, they've invested a ton jared they've invested in two guards they've invested in a right tackle with two contracts now and they have a 10th overall pick invested in jedrick wills and if this group isn't dominating because of how they're paying them that's a big problem man it's a really big problem and i guess the question here as we wrap up the group like are you concerned about it like are you concerned going into next year that maybe this group isn't as dominant as some others that we think have a lot of talent i think you can make an excuse for a lot of position groups on the browns you know like Maybe not so much offense because it feels like they have um, done pretty well for what they have for the most part on offense, but it's certainly a leg we stand on for defense, right? Like corner and underperformed detail like they need a new position coach and they're probably going to get it right. They got a new DC and there's there's elements to that group getting better that I think I'm really not that worried about the defense. I think Jim going to bring a level of competence and some people that it, it doesn't take again it's just me doesn't take a whole lot to get the defense better than what it was i think they're just going to be better <laughs> but the offense what i'm saying is there's not like a quick fix um and i have a reason behind that defense statement like i, I really do believe they just they, they, they're going to get some competent coaching and i think it's going to all work itself out there's going to be better it's very logical to think that group would be better but when you have callahan this is why I'm concerned more about the offense. When you have Callahan, it's great one of the, I mean, he's without I think he's without question the best, most well-respected offensive line coach in the NFL. You have Stunt Mitchell, very well respected running backs coach. And I think the wide receivers overachieved. Chad O'Shea deserves some credit for that. I thought they did really well. At least the top two guys did. And you could you could argue with it, maybe David Bell didn't get any better and Anthony Schwartz has never improved. And there's some stuff you can get to on that. But to me, I think it's I think it's I think it's been fine. And like I think you gotta get you gotta say here. When we're kind of honing in on offensive line with Callahan. Why the hell did they get worse? What happened? Right. Because like, there's no, there's no reason that they should have gotten worse. And should we be concerned about this going
2: into next year? Yeah. And that's actually what I was going to bring up is my concern is because they do have Callahan, right? Like if they had Joe Schmo, if they had me coaching the offensive line. Then would be like, all right, go ahead and get rid of Jared. He's an idiot. Yeah. yeah. That's you have saying. bill freaking Callahan, right? You have James Hudson, who looked quite horrible last year, and as as a rookie this year looked a little bit better. But you you have quality players that just didn't seem to gel, didn't seem to to have that same excitement, that same kind of stick to itiveness. Uh, And there could be a lot to it. But you're you're right that it is a concern. It is a concern that where you're putting a lot of money and you have a universally agreed upon great coach that you got worse as the season went on, even when people were slightly healthy, right? Or, you know, whatever that is, there's got to be a concern there. You got to figure out what that is. And if it starts out ugly next year, you have to wonder if there's just something fundamentally missing between the group of offensive linemen, the scheme, Callahan, all of that, Mm -hmm. Uh, which if if this group doesn't get the offensive line right, there is a reason to say that's probably that's could be their death knell to be very honest it won't be watson it could be but in general if you don't get the offensive line right and you've invested everything you just described then that's where you have failed your entire team there's there's no doubt about it jared like he is this is
1: this would be a problem for Andrew Barry. He has invested heavily. And I think a lot of us like the contracts at the time. And, you know, Joel Batonio is a first team all pro. He's fantastic. They got a lot out of Ethan Postage, So that's another great angle. Like, it's not all bad here, but if they have a group performance that was like last year when it mattered down the stretch and and it's a pro- like they have invested too much money to be bad there. It has to be a pointed strength of this team based on what you spent on it, because you're saying we believe Wyatt Teller is an elite player. We believe Joel is an elite player. We believe that 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 Jedrick Wills and we'll see what they do with his decision on his fifth year option this year is a good player. We believe Jack Conklin's good enough to give another contract to for two more years, and that's an evaluation. That's a GM making that decision. So there's just a lot writing on these guys being better, and I think it's, I think it's fair to be a little. And again, I I laid out why you can say they didn't perform as well as you'd hope because of certain factors into the year the offensive scheme was evolving and the new quarterback there's 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 reasons to say you know this happened for this reason it's fine but you don't know for sure and I think it's fair to be a little bit concerned about are they the elite group that they have been in years past or are they starting to decline and last year's end of the season was evidence of that so I think again it's fair to be concerned you can do the positive side of this too which is Hey, they'll find a center who can be fine. Nick Harris will come back from injury. They'll find it. White Teller d- doesn't have the calf strain? He was bad. It's like right after the calf strain injury, he took his season, took a tail. Joel Batonio still again, first team all pro. Very good. Right. Jedrick Wills. We'll see. Still good enough to be a starter, but they've hoped for more. And like when Conklin played and got comfortable coming back from that knee as the year wore on, he got better. So like it's it's not all doom and gloom here, but their collective performance wasn't good enough. They need to, again, I'm just talking about, you know, what are you paying them and why are you paying them? Well, you're paying them big money to be really good, and if they're not really good, that's a failure. That's a failure on decision-making, and it's a failure on structure because you have an elite offensive line coach who's done well wherever he's gone. So it's not like Callahan just sucks all of a sudden, right? Callahan turned down an opportunity to interview for an OC job. He took an extension. He wants to be in Cleveland. So, they just have to be better there. They cannot be as bad. Now again, I, I think it's fair to say there's some scheme stuff that they could do to help them, right, to alleviate some of the issues. But individual performances have to be better. Let's go through those. You start with Jed. We're three years in, Jared. We're three huh. years in now. I, there are people on on both sides of this spectrum that are that are too far. And again, this is life in 2023 America. I get it, but like he is talented he is a great athlete he is very nimble he makes some recovery plays that that have left me and kyle murphy breaking it down on chalk talk and all we can't believe like that's an unbelievable play and he'll have really good technique on a lot of snaps but he is a an inconsistent issue he is he has not refined the things that have plagued him inside overset. so guys beating him inside uh you know the the inability to feel out quarterback depth drop and be a guy running the the uh Running the running the arc has not felt how deep or how far he needs to get them past or the scheme, how a defensive player is set to react to a scheme you're running, whether play action and how how they're going to attack you personally and adjust your path, your technique off of that. Like and on top of all of that, his biggest issue, he doesn't finish plays. He is too often. Now, the people will put out these examples on Twitter of screens and they're not the right example. (laughs) You want me to find examples? I can find several examples of the guy just quitting a play early and it's not a play where kind of, you know, an offensive lineman on a screen, a tackle sort of supposed to quit it relatively early. There's a lot of nuance going on with screenplay. So my point is, though, I our coaches used to call it helmet camming. You know, if you were standing around and this used to be a thing with quarterbacks and you'd hand the ball off and you would stare at the play, they used to call that helmet camming. But he will be finishing up whatever he thinks he's supposed to do, whether that's his blocking scheme. Um, his assignment for whatever, you know, pass, he'll just be staring. He'll look around. He'll stand up. He'll be standing up and watching things happen before the whistle blows and before anybody else does anything else, like gives up on a play. And it's a problem. And I cannot imagine a guy as smart as Bill Callahan is not like just utterly perplexed about how to fix it. I think Jed, whose, whose metrics this year, he was a 62.9 overall grade, a 55.3 run blocking grade, and a 69.6. Pass blocking grade and how that compares to his career. It is his second lowest grade since his 2020 rookie year. He uh, had his second worst um, uh, run blocking grade and he had uh, it climbed a little bit, but his best pass blocking grade was his rookie year, 77.6. He had a 69.6 this year after 67 grade last year. He gave up his most pressures in his career. Now, last year he was hurt, if you recall. So he only played 763 snaps last year. But um, uh, he gave up 28 pressures last year. He gave up 41 this year in 1152 snaps, six sacks, 11 hits, and had 10 penalties. Um, you know, his rookie year he only gave up 20 pressures in 1,025 snaps, four sacks, five hits, 11 hurries, as opposed to 24 had 11 penalties. So it's not like the penalty issue has just disappeared, and I'm I'm concerned, man. I thought he could figure this out and be and be a really good tackle. Maybe it's still in there, but when you're three years into this thing, that's why they make you make a decision on fifth-year contracts Is you kind of know who guys are by this point of the year. If you're looking at players who played 50% minimum snaps and pass blocking of 1,200 snaps this year, um, and we expand this thing out to 100, so there were 57 qualifying tackles, um, and Jedrick Will's pass blocking grade was 37th out of 57. His pressure numbers, um, his 41 pressures were tied for 10th most among all tackles. His penalty number of 10 was tied for 11th uh, most of all tackles. So, and again, his sack number, which I think again was six is tied for 14th. Uh, His hurry number, which was 24 is tied for 17th. It's not great, man, especially for the third year of what you think is an immensely talented player. So, There's some concerning stuff here. If you look at his run blocking grade, um, again, his run blocking grade down in uh, 55.3 is 44th of 57 qualifying tackles. So um, I don't know where your level of concern is with him, but I'm not I'm not certain. I thought I used to be certain they'd pick up his fifth year. I'm not as certain. I wouldn't be stunned if they didn't. I'd be surprised because you finding tackles is not easy and there are plenty of worse ones, but I have to think they thought he'd be further along right now and is safely a below expectation player at this juncture.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I think they're going to pick up the fifth year option just because there's just not enough. I. I, I just think it's a logical decision, yeah. and they can't you know, create holes. They're not in the ma- Yeah, they're not in a position to create more holes at this point. Right, and so, and I know fans will say he's not worth it, but it's similar to the conversation with J.R. Smith and Tristan Thompson years ago in Cavs. You can't replace them, so he is worth it, right? And again, I don't say that, but because a you'd have to find a replacement. And you're talking about the Greg Robinson, Chris Hubbard days, because that's who's mm-hmm. generally available as a replacement, unless, you know, there's some kind of injury like Jack Conklin and all that. Or James Hudson, problem, who we saw this year. Like, that's yeah, your replacement. That's your, that sense. is your replacement. Absolutely. Or yeah. a third or a fourth round pick, right? Like, that's just the reality of it is. So, you know, in the end, they're, I think they're picking up the fifth year option. The thing from kind of a macro view with Jed that I think is, problematic, both for his play on the field, but also kind of the narrative around him is he is neither a technician where you just see him technically be sound, but every once in a while I was going to get beat athletically or, you know, just get bull rushed or whatever, but he is just technically sound and he is doing the exact right thing all the time. Right. Joe Thomas was this, uh, mm-hmm. Joe Batonio is a little bit of this and he's also not an animal, Right. Mm -hmm. He's not nasty. He's not finishing plays. He's not his mistakes. And then he's getting beat because he got too aggressive. Right. He's neither of those things. So both from on the field and developmentally, there's not this kind of strength. You can say we Mm. want to use Jed in this kind of way and we'll overcompensate for this or this. He's good at certain things and mediocre at other things, but he just doesn't have his his thing. And then from the fan perspective, they don't have anything they can say. Jed Wills is good at this. They can say he's athletic, but there's no he is good at this. And I think that in and of itself is keeping him from really what the 10th overall pick should be, both from a narrative perspective, but also on the field. I, I got to say it. And again, I, I don't mean and I, I
1: there are people that will try to put this like back to him. I just don't think he, I question whether he loves and is passionate about football. And again, I, I don't mean that to be mean. I just don't, when I see him play, I don't see a fire burning to finish plays or a fire burning to be consistent, consistent technician. Like you're talking about when he's at his best, he is a technician type. Like he'll overwhelm you with where he's supposed to be and beating you to the spot, but the inconsistent nature of that, that, takes away from being labeled a technician. He's never going to be a win with power guy. He's an athlete, not a bully. But when he's at his best, he is winning by being um, an overwhelming athlete at the position where he is just like beating everybody to the spot. You know, he's, he's using the ability to replace his hands. He'll he'll turn around like he'll get beat on a spin, be able to turn around and get to the spot before another defensive, before that defensive. End, I've seen it. He can do it. The thing that I think is like, to do that consistently, you gotta really love it. You gotta be in love with the game. And I think it feels to me like Jed has always been the best athlete on the field at that position. And he's just been able to get by by doing not the bare minimum, but just the required work, put it that way. And I think that there's a, a thing that's like, does Jed does Jed have a deep desire to be the best in the NFL? And I don't have evidence of on field play that tells me yes. So that could be something that's debunked by people that are in the building working with him. I don't live in Berea and go to the building and know what I can tell you is I watch games really closely. And I think yeah, it's a very, I think it's very fair to question that. And, and I think that until I see evidence of a guy who plays through the whistle, a guy who is like, oh, I see. He he knew this tendency. He knew what they like to do here, there or whatever. Until I see those things, I have to question Whether he loves desire and has this desire to be the best at his position. And I think that is, to me, the largest thing stopping him from being great. And again, I don't know him personally. I'm not his offensive line coach. I'm not his friend. So I could be wrong here, but I don't have evidence to the contrary. And that part of it is a big bummer to me because he is so, so gifted from, from the perspective of his size compared to the way his feet can move. I'm just going to say it. If he cared about it a lot, if he cared about it a lot and got the cerebral part of it down to go along with the physical traits that are there to match it all together, he is as gifted with his footwork when it's right to be a version of Trent Williams. I really, truly mm-hmm. believe that. Now, Trent Williams is... A, a rare breed that can kill you and also dance with you. Like that's what, I'm, but he's not going to be a kill you type necessarily. But when you see like, there's a very popular clip there of, of this week of, of Trent Williams, um, uh, you know, just given Micah Parsons fits, just being so, so gifted physically with the footwork that you just can't get around him. And like when Jed, if Jed could figure that stuff out, he has that level of athleticism and, to me, that's why I'm so frustrated with him. And to me, that's why I think his his team, I think the Browns are a little frustrated with him too. We've seen him pulled early from games. Like, I don't think they know what to do to draw this out of him because if he were to dedicate himself to the craft and do those, th- I, I, have no, I have very little doubt that he could become a top five offensive tackle. I really do. His testing numbers bore out. It got overshadowed because Tristan Wirfs was a physical anomaly. when mm, he was right. t- tested really well. And like... He's switched positions, so that doesn't fade to me. But now you're three years into left tackle. There really isn't an excuse anymore. So I'm just, I'm a little perplexed, man. I'm not ready to give up on him. And I do hope they pick up the fifth year and let it run out. But he's certainly not where I hoped he would be. And I'm not somebody that can just make excuses for him left and right. Like he has to be held accountable for the issues he's had. And it doesn't mean like you said, Jared, eloquently. And I think the J.R. Smith example and Tristan Thompson, when there was that moral dilemma on whether they pay those guys. How are you gonna replace them? Who's out there to replace them and do what they do? Now that means you have to overpay, but th- there's just not, again, you're creating a hole. You're creating an issue that is not just plug and play with a new answer, you know? So um, I just I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed. I think I think that's where I end up with Jed. Do you want to say anything else before we move on with him?
2: Nope. I, I'm I'm there with you.
1: Okay, let's talk Conklin real quick, finishing up the two tackles. We played meaningful snaps. So Jack. Again, you have to understand he's coming back from a major, major injury, the patella, but also a dislocated elbow the year before. So there was always that to remember. Um, and I thought he worked his way back in really well. Now he had his second worst grade, ironically, similar to his it was his third year in Tennessee where he tore the ACL and had similar grades to this year. And they didn't pick up his fifth year option in Tennessee. That's why he hit the open market after his fourth year and ultimately came to Cleveland. He had his sixty six point seven grade was similar to that season um, in twenty eighteen. He had a, his worst run blocking grade, which is jarring to me because he's always been such a gifted run blocker. His fifty one point eight grade is by far his worst run blocking grade of his career. Like his worst before that was that twenty eighteen season. He had a sixty six point two. His pass blocking numbers, though, were really good. And on the up and up, his his second best pass blocking grade in the last six years. So he only gave up 13 pressures. He only gave up 10 hurries and two sacks. And um, he did have 10 penalties, which, again, um, he needs to clean up on. His sec- That's the most he's had in a single season. In 2019, he had nine um, in the last two years, including his first year, 2020, when he was so good. It was a, it was a first team all pro that year. He only had two penalties but the pressure number he gave up this year is lower than that 2020 season they're very encouraged by the pass blocking stuff and i have to think that they're banking on his run blocking stuff will return to to some form of his normal number but um you know looking at his stats for the years pass blocking number at 78.8 was the 14th highest out of 57 qualifiers so you you love that um his hurry number um being uh, for the, again you're qualifying um, God, Tristan Wirfs, 1,013 snaps this year for Tristan Wirfs. He only gave up six pressures. That's unbelievable. Uh, Conklin, though, third, third best number, uh, which is fantastic, right? Uh, so third out of 57 qualifiers with only 13 pressures allowed from him. So that's that's really great. Uh, the two sacks are obviously extremely strong number. That's tied for eighth, and then um, quarterback hits being at six. Uh, is is down uh, down toward the medium number there too. So he, he he had a strong pass blocking. Now the run blocking, not good. Um, that, that metric actually is below Jed. So he was 49 to 57 qualifiers. But again, I think they're banking on that being a one-year anomaly. I actually think for where con- – you're probably going to disagree with me, but for what he was coming off of, I think he was above what I expected him to be this year. I, I think he's got a, a level to get better next year as he gets now two years removed from the patella injury. But to come back and get some solid level of play from him to 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 really good at times, I think it, he was above what I expected, but I could probably be understanding where people would think he was sort of at expectation level.
2: Yeah, I think that's where your reasonableness is too reasonable in that he, is, he performed good because of the injury, but if he didn't have the injury – we would probably, we're grading him on an injury curve, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jack Conklin for his contract, obviously he reworked it before the extension. So he was getting paid less. Like even that should have probably given us some like hints that we weren't going to see the Jack Conklin that we have seen. And so I think he's below expectations or at expectations, um, you know, right in that range because of who Jack Conklin was. But when you add in the injury and, uh, you know, the changes and all of that, they went on with, you know, going from Jacoby Brissett to to Sean Watson. I think there's some hope there that, that he's going to be the Conklin he has been uh for this extension. I don't have a problem with saying he's at expectations or, or a little bit above expectations, given the injury. I just think we're grading him on a curve as opposed to grading him as Jack Conklin, the stud right tackle.
1: Fair. I think that's fair. He's got to be better next year. I just, uh, I certainly think I was impressed with where he got to this year and hopefully he built They're banking on. It. I mean, they gave him another contract, no two years, they're banking on that continuing to be the norm for him for two more. So we'll see a lot of pressure uh, moving to guard. So you have two uh, guys who I think qualify here. I don't think that a third guard got enough snaps to qualify on this. I like to look at 50% cause that's, that's again, a number that is Sir, uh, uh, cert- I need you to have a certain number of snaps. That's, that's the sample size thing. So um, Joel Batonio, we'll start with him. Joel had the second best, guard grade. Um, Chris Lindstrom had a phenomenal season for the Atlanta Falcons and 1,047 snaps. Uh, Joel had a, uh, so Lindstrom had a 95 grade, which is, whoo, that's really good. Um, so, um, Lindstrom has 95 Joel is an 87.5. Then no other guard achieved a grade, uh, collectively over 80 across the league. So pretty good stuff from Joel, his run blocking metrics, second best run blocking grade in the NFL guard, 84.4, uh, which is fantastic. And then, Pass blocking grade was tied for seventh with an 80.2. He gave up 20 pressures, 13 hurries, six hits, and then um, so 20 is obviously the collective number here. In case you guys haven't done the math here, um, of those 20 pressures, 13 of them were hurries, six were hits, and he gave up one sack. So the 20 pressures is not great per se, but they didn't. There's there's varying degrees to pressures, right? So he's 20 21st in pressure number there, which isn't bad by any stretch. It's certainly in the top half. But, um, you know, the sack number is where he really thrived. He only gave up one sack and there weren't that many guys. He was tied for fifth for guys and giving up number of sacks. So obviously all good stuff from Joel and it, and it falls in line. He's had three all pro seasons in a row. He's been phenomenal. He was so good in 21. Obviously, he had 21. He, he ended up playing left tackle for 123 snaps and was so good at that. Uh, I think 2020 he was really good um it certainly was i think you had said earlier joel took a step he wasn't as effective as last year but still obviously among the best playing the position in the nfl and i think at this point if he puts another all pro season together you're talking about a guy's got a real hall of fame opportunity here like his is his resume will be that of a potential hall of famer you know like it's amazing to me that in 2014 his rookie year through 2019 he had one season graded above an 80. His rookie year was a 79.3 and then he had an 80.3 in uh, 2018. And then he has just put together three unbelievable seasons right in a row. And that's kind of crazy to have that that far along in your career. So Joel's like a fine wine, man. He keeps getting better here.
2: He does. And, and when I say he just wasn't at his his normal that's just comparing him to absolute greatness, right? And so yeah, just- that's—I that, think that's fair. Like the grade
1: was a little worse than last year. It, yeah, I think that there were times, like I think the Atlanta game, that that Jacoby Brissett final interception or the sack before the final interception, he gave up a Grady Jarrett sack. Like there were moments where he was a part of the problems too, here and there. But again, it's like I think there's some step back—not you, you here, but everybody. A step back, oh my god, like this guy actually, if you compare him to the rest of the guards
2: in the NFL, <laughs> he's really damn good still. So I think
1: there's his, some his step to back there. was
2: second best, third best guard in the league. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing to remember is that it is the chain link, right? And so oh, yeah. when Teller is struggling and not as good as he needs to be, Jed Wills next to him is struggling. When it goes from Harris to Posick, you know, when when Conklin is struggling and not playing in the first two two games really Joel Batonio was the only one that was consistent this year, right? It was the only consistent place. It was the only consistent performer. And so for him to take a small step back makes sense, given everything around him on that Mm -hmm. chain. I'm with you. I I would say
1: he is still as elite as they come, and I'm expecting him to have another – I'm expecting him to be a pro bowler. Going above that to all pros and above expectation. You cannot – just sit there and ever expect a guy to be, I mean, there's only two all pro guards. It was him and Zach Martin. Like, so to me, he's above expectation. So his baseline is pro bowl becoming an all pro is an above expectation year. So shout out to Joel, man. We love you. And, And truly is now a Cleveland. He's a Cleveland legend. So phenomenal stuff. Wyatt Teller is the other guard we have to take a look at here. And it's not as good. Like I I'm a little fearful of where these things are going with Wyatt, but if you would say how Wyatt's season went, where do you think he finished out of? Um, let's see here. Let me make sure I know how many total guards played. 56 total guards. Where do you think his total grade was this year among those at this position? 32nd. 15th. 15th best really? overall grade. Really? Yep. Right in front of Austin Corbett. Shout out to old uh, Austin Corbett, who's continued to get better and better over time. Um. So, yeah, Wyatt grades a 70.3, 15th best overall grade in his 70.3. Run blocking grade was ninth best at the position. His 67.9 pass blocking grade was 27th out of 56 qualifiers. So we might have been frustrated with Wyatt, but again, I think that we would say he was below expectation because we have a Pro Bowl expectation for Wyatt Teller, right? So that's why we felt he was below. Not that he's a problem that you need to cut. He is a stellar player still, but he's not the level of dominance that they're paying for. And we are expecting, you know what I'm saying, Jared? So that's where I think we get a little bit skewed on this whole thing. So as far as his pressure numbers allowed, um, he ended up giving up 23 pressures on the year, which is tied for 33rd. Um, he Sorry, 26 for the year. And of those 26, 17 were hurries, five hits and four sacks. So again, um, the hurry stuff is what stands out. That 16 number. Listen, man, there were guys who gave up 40 quarterback hurries <laughs> this year. Guys who gave up 35, 33, 31. Like, it's not terrible. 16 not terrible, but it's higher than we would expect. And if you go and you look at Wyatt's per- performance across his career, especially since he's been in Cleveland and figured it out, you start to see where coming from. His last two years were phenomenal. A ninety point ninety-two point three grade in 2020. And then in 2021, he had an 84.9. So there is a steep fall off here. But you have to look at the injury. Through six weeks, he had games graded of 85.9, 80.2, 84.1. He had two games in there, three games mixed in in the high 60s. He was still performing really well. Here's what happened after the injury came back week 10 after the bye. 56.9. Actually, and I take that back. That New England game, he didn't grade well. He only played one series, two series. He he only played 15 snaps. He left that game early. So he came back too soon. And then obviously, uh, week t- or no, that was when he got hurt. He came back in the Miami game after the bye and left after only 11 snaps. So it's really hard to look at those two games and say he played a ton of them because he got hurt. So you take those out. Yeah, that Miami game was ugly for everybody. everybody. Yeah, so his pre-injury grades, 85.9, 68.7, 80.2, 64.2, 84.1. So he was still grading in the low to mid-80s collectively overall. Then again, 11, 15 snaps from New England, 11 snaps from Miami, week six and week 10. He was obviously out in between there. Forty Coming out, Buffalo, 42, 59, 48, 57. He had one seventy-seven point three grade against Baltimore, but then closed with the 57, 66, 61. So you can see... It's a pretty clear line here where pre post injury happened. So I think at this point, we we say he was below expectation. That's fine. Before, listen, before the injury in week six, he'd only given up six pressures and one sack through that point. Obviously, coming out of it, he had a game with four, three, two, three, four. Like it was post injury, Wyatt Teller was different. Can he get it back on track? We have to presume so because he's so talented. He's still young. He's only 28. He's going to play this whole season at 28. Doesn't turn 29 until late November. So the Browns are banking on him being really good for two more years. I think he will be. Um, But there certainly is um, a little bit of, oh God, you know, is this what Wyatt Teller is?
2: But you got to look at the injury and say there's too much of a coincidence. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's where we, we try to be realistic and reasonable, but You also have to wonder, you know, this is a guy who's a fifth-round pick and the Bills traded away, I believe, for a fifth-round pick, if I'm correct. I forget exactly what that trade was. And all of a sudden, he's great, right? And he's he's great and he has no expectations and he is literally barrel-rolling into blocks and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I think one of the things that's concerning is some of the things that Wyatt Teller is really good at, turning a guy and burying him, has now become a hold in the NFL. And I don't know if that's going to continue. It hasn't made a lot of sense to me, but there are, there have been a few times this year. Weird calls, man, like snatch mm-hmm. trap calls were called. Holding. Yeah. It was really weird, which is more of a jet more on the outside than it is yeah. on the inside. Correct. But yeah. So I, you know, there are those kind of things where you're like, wait, did something change in the NFL? Cause I didn't, I didn't just see it with Teller. I saw it in a variety of other NFL games where, that guy just buried somebody. Like we would have been like celebrating that, putting it on a highlight reel. Mm-hmm. Like he just buried a, a defensive tackle, and he just got called for holding. Like that's a pancake, man. Like or that's a berry, whatever you want to call it. So there are some concerns that you know he he was a fifth round pick, he got traded, and all of a sudden he's great. And I do have some concerns that is he too quote unquote physical for today's NFL. But the injury allows us to just kind of press pause even injured like you said he was he wasn't rated that terrible let's go ahead and expect he's going to return to form and he's going to figure it out if he can't bury somebody the way he's been burying him he him and Callahan are going to have to figure out a different way
1: yeah that's that's the that's a great thing to point out and hopefully that can turn itself around and I just again have to think that a large part of it is is tied to that injury and until I see him come out healthy and be what we think is a really healthy version and this happens again I'm not in a concerned state. I think he will get back to to some of some of who he was. So um, switching our last position here is center. I mean, Ethan Posich, by any stretch of the imagination, here's one of the better graded centers, which is a surprise. I mean, I think we were all banking on Nick Harris. Uh, the destruction of the second snap of the first preseason game happens, <laughs> and it's like, okay, Ethan Posich has experience, but it's going to be a problem. He comes out and plays so well. He played 819 snaps, third highest center grade in the league, um at 79.0 behind only jason kelsey and creed humphrey and kc his 79.1 run blocking grade is fifth his pass blocking grade of 71.5 is eighth he gave up 10 pressures which is second best for the position um eight of those were hurries so he didn't let his quarterback get hit he allowed only two sacks which again was stellar for the position tied for 11th across the league the quarterback hits being down at uh, he didn't give up one quarterback hit, so that's the best with Kelsey and Frank Ragnow, uh, in Detroit tied there. So I mean, by any, I mean, it was way above expect, like the probably the most outside of maybe Brissett, the most unexpected uh, above expectation number, and he had one penalty all year again. Which I think, if I look at this and sort it right, yeah, him and Mason Cole in Pittsburgh, who's not nearly as effective a player, had one penalty as well. So I mean, I mean, geez, when you look at it that, I mean, he was it was fantastic and um the thing you have to wonder and a little uh, i wonder a little bit with Postage is you didn't close the year great came back from injury 16 17 18 they weren't great games how much of this is can gonna be considered it, there's nothing that tells you like he started to have a better year in 21 in terms of run blocking but his pass blocking grade in 21 was a 43.8 he gave up 18 <laughs> pressures and 600 snaps gave up 20 pressures the year before that like I just – he's not a penalty guy. He's only had, like, in the last four years, and that includes two seasons of over 800 snaps and another one of over 600. In the last three years, he only had four penalties. So he plays clean. I like him. It was an above-expectation year, and we'll talk about the 23 outlook in a second. But as far as just looking at him, like, I mean, they got every bit of what they pay. I mean, they paid him on a one-year deal, and it was cheap, and that was a home run, man.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's above expectations. one point whatever million. I wasn't sure he was making the team. I didn't know if Dawson Deaton, you know, the seventh or sixth round pick last year would have. So, yeah, he's definitely above expectations. And some team, I don't care if it's, I don't know the Bears offensive line well enough, but they're the ones with $100 million in salary cap space. Some team is probably going to give Ethan Posick, based on his size, based on where he was drafted, based on last year, someone's going to give him a contract. So Mm -hmm. uh, he was above expectations, but we're going to have to let that ship probably go. Yeah, might, I said we ship. And, Just want to make that. sure we're clear there.
1: Yeah, he uses he's, he's the letter P. Very important. Um, so, okay, I'll ask you another trivia question. If we expand this out to 20% of 1,256 snaps, we get Yodi Froholt in there. Okay? So in that listing, that turns into 41 centers played, 20% of 1,256 snaps. That gets us Froholt. Where do you think he grades among those? Because Froholt took a real beating from people yeah, he for did. his performance.
2: Um, now I'm going to go a little higher than I probably thought I would. 26. Not
1: bad. 23rd. So <laughs> people are killing this guy and he actually wasn't terrible. I mean, he, he actually really wasn't terrible for coming in and playing a position. I don't know. I can look real quick here at Froholt's career. I don't think he played center in the NFL for a serious number. He's only played two registered years. They the, had 61 snaps with new England in 2020. He's largely been a practice squad guy and he had 591 snaps in 2022, and all of them, 353, sorry, not all of them. They were, those are the first center snaps he's played in, in NFL. So, like, to what they got out of him was was pretty yeah. good, in my opinion. Now, there's two clear areas for him. He was a, a pretty good run blocker, so his run block number was 12th best among all guards, actually, at 67.5. Where he struggled was pass blocking. So, again, you're talking about postage has over 800 uh, pass blocking or sorry 800 snaps I don't know what what uh I can find it real quick here for 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 postage how many he had uh, 461 pass blocking reps and I went over he only had 10 pressures eight quarterback hurries and two sacks is what made up those 10 pressures for only had. well I actually had a pretty similar number he had 342 he had 18 pressures eight uh eight hurries three times quarterback and his seven sacks I actually think his seven sacks, yeah, him and Scott Questenberry in Houston tied for the most sacks allowed, and and obviously Froholt did it in 342 pass-blocking reps, and Scott Questenberry had 633, so um, the pass-blocking was a problem. There's no doubt about that, but he was not as big a problem as people tried to label him, especially in why the run game was breaking down, because the run game struggled, and it was like, well where's Posich you know it's like I'm telling you man he's not that bad and again now there could be some stuff about communicating the mic and getting some pre-snap stuff adjusted for run game stuff but like I didn't have a large issue with Froholt as a backup center playing and like yeah he wasn't great but 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 again he's a backup and to me that's what he was able to do and the respectability of what he was trying to do I think he was an above expectation for a guy we didn't really have any expectations for to your point we weren't sure if he was going to make the team so yeah there's clearly not a long-term future I don't think you want Yodi for playing center you're hoping that Nick Harris comes back and anchors it or they draft a guy or sign another cheap one year but I thought for what they asked him to do he was respectable at it and um and deserves a real chance to once again make the roster to play that guard center swing reserve role again, because I was pretty surprised he was the center. Like I thought it'd be Michael Dunn, but Michael Dunn got hurt again. I thought there was a chance they can move somebody else inside to do it, but he was it. And it was kind of like, okay, it's not terrible here. And he got a lot of blame. I didn't think he deserved, but yeah, I safely say above expectation. What do you think?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think he's a great example. Even when you look at the data or even PostIC. Where you're like, wow, we really do expect greatness, right? Like, yeah, know so almost everything. Position it's like,
1: group, Jared, among yeah. Browns fans, that we've been spoiled. Like, yep, yeah, a lot of franchises Alex have a Wrights lot and... of spoiling. Like, we're on the total, the total antithesis of this for us <laughs> would be the wide receiver position, where <laughs> I I had documented how like Amari Cooper going over 1,100 yards. That's like, this is extremely rare. So it's the that that's the total difference, and the Browns are. The O-line is one of the few that we've been spoiled with. And that you, to your point, which is
2: greatly uh, described there, is 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 we're spoiled with it at times. Yeah, and I mean, I think, le- listen, get him back to being a fullback every once in a while, that extra tight end, because at some level, I think if I figured out the math, he was their fifth choice, right? So Harris, Posick, Michael Dunn, Dawson, Deaton, then Froholt. Like, you're literally, your fifth choice at center was okay. Like, you got to say, wow, that's great. Because there, there are not five starting-level offensive linemen. There are not 160 starting-level offensive linemen in the NFL. There just aren't. And so for the fact that the Browns' fifth choice for center was okay, acceptable, whatever, like, that is more than a win, right? That might actually be more impressive than Posick for the one-year, one-point, whatever they signed him for. Because he is your fifth center option, and he played acceptable.
1: Yeah, I'm with it. I'm with it. I, th- I think he deserves uh, to, to be credited for that, and I hope he sticks around. Whether that's actually out there on the field in some capacity as a swing player, if that comes to fruition, or, or um, you know, if he if he doesn't make it and finds a practice squad, I think he's a nice member of the uh, organization. So the the next highest snap player uh, for the Browns was James Hudson, who had 296 snaps. 119 run 177 he actually graded out as a 77.0 run blocker the pass blocking stuff was like what's going on here because he would come into games late and like he started a few of those games early for conklin before conklin got healthy i think right didn't he yep started, yeah, he started, started the first one and two, two. and he yep. had a really really nice game in carolina um, but he had he had struggled against the jets in week two where he gave up three pressures which were three hurries. But then he like was coming into games late. Like he came into the Buffalo game late and almost got people hurt Had four pressures a lot. And then the same thing with the Pittsburgh game where he came in late and in 47 snaps of that one, he gave up four pressures, three hurries and one sack. So in a hundred and how many did I say? 177 pass block snaps. He gave up 15 pressures, 12 hurries, a sack and two hits. Like it's not good, man. And I, I'm worried <laughs> about like, You know, again, you're putting a guy in late in the game who's been standing on the sideline. So you got to take that into perspective. And I actually thought when they used him as a gadget O lineman, a guy who came in to do the motion, like remember that motion play he had against Uh uh, Baltimore and when he was the sixth O lineman doing different things, he was fine. I'm not here to write off James Hudson, but like I think for what we were hoping would come the season would look like for him. It's hard to really give a definitive perspective here, but it was a, a little under, at least under what I hoped. I, I would say it's probably not fair to give him a above-below uh, expectation. I number mean, here, But 15 pressures and that number of snaps is kind of tough to swallow. So I hope there's better things to come from him. I'll leave it at that.
2: Yeah, I think he's a developmental player that hasn't developed. And I think, unfortunately, the Browns have done... It seems like the middle of the draft, third, fourth, fifth rounds at some level have primarily been developmental players, athletic players that could become something. And then late they figured out Donovan Peoples-Jones is actually good at football, does have some talent, you know, uh, even Demetric Felton, I don't, he didn't do anything this year, but it feels like a lot of their third and fourth round picks just haven't developed the Tommy Togi eyes, James Hudson, Anthony Schwartz, right? Alex Wright played a little bit better. Well, Hudson kind of falls in line in that kind of developmental player that just didn't develop so far. And again, that's another where to maybe too much on Bill Callahan's plate to try to develop all of these guys, but that's where his money is being made. And so that's something we're going to need to see next year. You know, whether that is, you know, in that swing roll, whether that's because of an injury, because someone loses a shoe, whatever it is, like, he's got to be able to show that because he's coming up on, you know, his year three and year three, you least got to be able to walk into the game and be okay or good, or that is a really hard pick to have w- missed another one on.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on some of the challenges of where that goes for him. So Hudson, again, it's not an easy thing for him to do but they need him to be able to step on the field and be fine to adequate so um yeah that kind of covers everybody i mean the only other people michael dunn had 82 snaps mostly as a six tackle when he was coming in he was fine he had a 79.5 pass blocking grade 13 snaps and i thought he did his job fine as a sixth alignment drew forbes had 19 snaps hubbard had 39 none of those guys we can really definitively say above or below and We'll cover down the line, way down the line, whether they keep some of these guys or around the Browns will make their own decisions on them. But, you know, for 23, I think the four guys are firmly entrenched. Hudson's firmly entrenched as a swing tackle. As we sit here, pretty obvious to me that Froholt will still be a part of their interior grouping. The same with Michael Dunn. But there's two decisions, right? The postage thing, which I think you you you've covered a little bit, and I know that it doesn't take you can't continue to pay big money to these like you've paid four linemen you can't pay a fit you just can't i don't care how cheap the con, like it would be silly for for postage to not cash in on this like right. he's got a real opportunity to make nfl money he's playing somewhere else like it just is what it is so the browns deserve credit for hitting a one year strike here they they deserve that but it's going somewhere else and so now it's time for nick harris now again the thing with nick harris for me is How well will he handle coming back from an AC? I haven't heard much about his recovery. How does he come back from that? And he is a player who puts a lot of torque on his knees because he uses a very specific hop technique, which I have documented many times that, that puts a lot of torque on the knee. And how well he's able to use that technique. He's used his whole career at Washington and into the NFL will be particularly interesting. I lean toward as I do a lot of these mocks about that fourth, nah, not really the fourth, but the fifth, sixth uh, round, seventh round range, looking at taking somebody who can be either a center has played centered in college. Like today I took Joe Titman out of Wisconsin. Who's a experienced center who can, who can, who can play really. They say he can play all five positions, but he's really an interior guy to me. So that's where I'm sort of looking at. I think they need to, they haven't drafted an interior guy in a little while that, that is meaningful. Now they did take Dawson Deaton last year, but that's a seventh round pick and maybe Dawson comes back and he's, some of what we're talking about here, maybe that's the case and that's what they're banking on. But I'm just I guess what I'm putting as I'm, I'm at least intrigued by that position in the draft. Like, I think it's on the table for me at this point, because, yeah, you think Nick Harris is going to come in and re-anchor that center role. But coming back from that series of an injury, as we saw, Jack now, the good thing is it happened early, as early Very as it can early. relatively right. happen it happened very early. So there's hope that he can come back and, and there's some confidence rebuilding and all that that comes with an ACL tear of that nature. So, um, I'm just, uh, put it this way. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by what they do with center. And I'm intrigued by whether they end up drafting a guy, uh, in a meaningful round, maybe a late fourth or, um, you know, fifth or sixth instead of that, that sort of, you know, you're fighting with the UDFA market, uh, when you draft late in the seventh. So those aren't, aren't always picks that indicate all too much, but, uh, you know, Deaton will get a chance to, there's still talent there, even if they don't draft somebody, but uh, I'm just, I'm interested in it. It's it's I uh, I don't think they're taking a tackle, but I'm I'm interested in uh in, in interior player. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, in general, you you hit the nail on the head. Like, you know, Nick Harris was going to have to be unique to, to win and be good as a, at center or even guard uh, at his size. He'd never be a tackle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that hop technique is not just what he's been doing all his life. It's what he kind of has to do because oh, he yeah. gives up so much, and with d j reader with cam Hayward um you know with a variety of other guys in the AFC North who knows if Claireus Campbell returns but whatever, like you have to be able to be stout and and that middle can't get blown up like that like and so I do think it's a there is a huge question about Nick Harris just even before the injury. We still were wondering if that was going to work. If he was, if there was enough there from a strength and power and technique perspective to overcome some of those limitations that he cannot do anything about. And now you add that knee and all of that to it. I think it's an interesting position. Thankfully, generally center is undervalued in the draft. So even someone like uh, Alex Forsyth, who might be a third or a fourth round pick might fall into that fifth or sixth round, maybe that fifth round area. So he's someone from Oregon. He's an older player, could step in right away kind of guy. Um, I do think they're going to have to look at that position. Thankfully, it's just so undervalued that I think they'll be able to find someone there uh, that could be the Ethan Ethan Posick of next year. I'm with it. I'm with it. That is the only
1: position that's sort of lingering. They They still have fine depth. Um, and they still have four pretty damn good players along that group, but that center thing needs to be resolved, and we'll get some internal answers by how they act, right? We'll we'll get an internal answer whether they like Dawson Deaton by whether they draft or sign somebody, and we'll also probably get some indications about Nick Harris's prospect of coming back and being the guy they envisioned him to be, and and we're really excited about based on his offseason last year. So this is the longest spot I've done in a while, Jared, but, man, it was a lot of fun. We covered a lot (laughs) of really, really, really good stuff, and the O-line's always going to take the longest because it's got the most singular uh, position stuff here. So in, in, anyway, man, I really appreciate you, your insights, uh, as we always say, and, and, uh, you know, thanks for, um, you know, continuing to put out great content on your site, brother. We appreciate you a ton.
2: Absolutely, man. It's always good to uh, have left the place and still be connected to them like that. That's yeah. a sign of, of that you left a really great place because you still get to connect with those people and be a part of their lives and be a part of the work that they do. So uh, as always, appreciate the OBR and everything they've done for my career and just to be able to connect with all you guys still. Yeah, we appreciate you, Jared. And guys, listen, we appreciate you guys for checking in the pod,
1: reading Dogs by Nature, reading the OBR, continuing to consume Brown's content through two difficult seasons. And that doesn't miss us. I, you know, the numbers are still great. And I appreciate you guys a ton for checking in, especially to this episode and, and the many of coming off the fresh scab of what last year brought us that you guys are still interested in this thing. So like uh, like I said, for Jared, for me, thanks for being here. I appreciate you a ton. Have a great Thursday, guys. Go Browns.
3: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about.